So we have been uh, walking through, those that are guests this morning, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, which is a New Testament letter written to a group of probably Jewish Christians who are struggling in some ways with their faith. So we're going to look uh, a little bit at a, a scripture this morning, kind of go real deep for Bible study for about maybe seven, ten minutes, and then we're going to talk about some implications of that. And so here's the question we're going to start with. What do you think Jesus is doing right now? Okay, Keith knows the answer. Look at that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, praying, right. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is praying right now. So read with me, if you have a Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 7, 23 to 25, and then we'll back up, give you some context. But uh, it says, talking about the old covenant and the priests there, now there have been many priests uh, in the old covenant since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood or, or a eternal priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, as we look at your scriptures and as we try to understand what you are teaching us this morning, that we would recognize and get a picture of who Jesus is. It would open our minds and hearts. We ask for a sparking and a building of faith in our souls as we look into this scripture this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to back up. We're just going to walk through very quickly chapter 7, give you a little idea what's going on. Look at the first four verses of chapter 7. Very strange. <laughs> it talks about this guy that we hardly know anything about from the Old Testament, Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a, gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. All right, what's going on here? Well, there's a guy, the, um, Abraham's nephew Lot is part of a city called Sodom, and there's a battle among, when you say kings, think city-states, right? These are sort of like Greek city-states. And they're having a big battle, and there's one guy they don't like. They have a big battle. The bottom line is Lot gets captured. And we find in chapter 14 that Abraham's a little different than we might have pictured from Sunday school. He's actually a major chieftain. And so when he hears his, uh, his uh, nephew's been captured, he rallies his guys and a bunch of other guys he's aligned with, and they go and they snatch Lot back and they defeat all these kings. He's like, he wins this battle. All right, well, fine, whatever. So he comes back and this guy who is a worshiper of God and a, a priest king in Salem, guess what? Salem's just Jerusalem. That's short for Jerusalem. Salem, he's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. He, his name, Melchizedek, just means king of righteousness. So the guy kind of symbolizes righteousness and peace. He comes out and meets Abraham. Abraham recognizes the spiritual authority of this Melchizedek, and he, he gives him a tenth of everything, which then as, as, then as now is a, a sign of kind of, you know, Thank you to God, you're recognizing this priestly figure, and he ties to him, right? So very odd. But what the author of Hebrews picks up on is that he's sort of like a shadow of Jesus, right? This is what he's, where he's going. So it's an odd argument to us. It's first century rabbinic Jewish exegesis, but he's saying, hey, Melchizedek's kind of like Jesus. Well, verse three is the weirdest one, right? He says, hey, 
You ever read Genesis? Most of them are saying, yeah, right? Oh, well, it doesn't mention Melchizedek having a father or a mother. Well, sure, why? Well, why would it, right? But he extends from that this idea that, oh, you know, so he's sort of like Jesus in having no human genealogy other than through Mary, right? That Jesus was the son of God. So he's just making kind of a, uh, kind of a leap. He doesn't really believe Melchizedek had, uh, was without birth, right? But he's saying, hey, it sort of reminds us of Jesus, right? That he had no uh, obvious beginning. And, uh, but what's the big point? The big point is, He's trying to say that there's something about the way they did priesthood in the Old Covenant with the Levites that it's, it's really not good enough. Right? It wasn't enough to really do what needed to happen, right? That Melchizedek's greater. And then he supports that in the next five verses. And again, there's just some you know, odd things that he says here, odd to us in terms of it's, it's a kind of exegesis that we're not... Uh, as familiar with, but he points out, just read verse 11. This is the big, the big thing here. Uh, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there need for another priest to come, one on the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? So you could read the rest of those verses, but his whole point is that in the Old Covenant, even the priesthood that God designed uh, couldn't bring perfection. Now, that would not be radical news for the people that really read the Old Covenant well, that they read the Old Testament well. Because actually, if you read the first five books of the Bible very carefully, you will see that the Levitical priesthood was not to, quote, save them, right? God saved them from Egypt, that's the picture of salvation. The, the priests are there, and if you read carefully, you'll see this. Every time they do something really stupid, God gives them a few more laws, not that that will save them, but it'll keep them from losing their identity, right? They're supposed to be the people of God, so they sin with the golden calf, so he says, oh my goodness, Aaron, the priest, makes that mistake, so he says, God says, okay, wait a minute, here's some laws guiding priests so they don't do that again, right? Well, okay, sounds good. Then you get all the way into Leviticus, and suddenly it's not the priests, but it's the people saying, well, we're going to go and offer our own offerings. And so they offer to goat idols. It's strongly implied that it was some kind of sexual immorality. And then they go, whoa, wait a minute. And they get another whole other bunch of set of laws saying, no people should be offering sacrifices on their own, only the priests. Why? Not because that saved them, but he was trying to give them worship practices that fit their culture that would keep them serving and identified as the people of God until he could bring the Messiah, right? So he's just trying, so it's really just what Paul says in Galatians and Romans that the law was given just to lead them to their need for seeing that they needed God to save them, to preserve their identities. So they wouldn't be just all over the place blending into the surrounding nations. Now, the author of Hebrews does one other thing that I want to mention. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. He quotes Psalm 110. We could read the whole psalm. We won't this morning. You can read it later. But if you read the psalm, you'll see two things. It's in the psalm, so it's after Leviticus, right? And it's saying, hey, there's a need for a new kind of priest, and it combines two things. He's a priest, but he's also a king. 
So the author of Hebrews is quoting this psalm because the Jews in his time, the first century, during the time of Jesus, they believed that there would be more than one Messiah. Now, you know, Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah, right? The Christians are saying uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Well, have you heard of Qumran? Some of you guys have been to Bible school, right? Qumran, right? Okay, the Qumran caves, so that's the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? These ancient scrolls, right? Well, those guys, they, they knew that the Jewish uh, people in power, the priests at the time, they knew they were corrupt. So they were like, this is a mess. God's going to send Messiah. So they went out in the wilderness and they wrote all these scrolls that we've now found, right? And they were waiting for two messiahs. A priest, based on the Old Testament, right? A priest and a king. So the author of Hebrews writing to early Jewish Christians is saying, hey guys, guess what? Jesus was both, and he uses Psalm 110 to show them. He's a priest and a king. See what he's doing? So this is not our concern so much about Jesus, but he's helping them see that he's a priest and a king. But here's the part that you need to see. The priest king in Psalm 110, you know, you're the priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. When we picture, when we say, well, Jesus is praying for us, you might picture something like this. It would be incorrect. But you might picture, oh, uh, Heavenly Father, these people are so rotten, but please forgive them for my sake. Nope, not the picture. Priest king. So what you're supposed to picture is in a royal setting where the king is still alive, but his son now has functional leadership of the whole kingdom. He is actually enthroned. His dad's maybe, you know, in his 80s. He's sort of the king. The son is the regent. But really, at this point, the son says, Father, this is what we're going to do. And the father says, that's right, son. Whatever you say. That's the picture of Jesus as the intercessor. He is saying, Father, this is the need of our people. And the father is saying, yes, son. He's not pleading with the Father, trying to change his mind. He's declaring his will for the people of God, right? So that's kind of the, the exegesis of the passage. You want to dig into that later. Uh, but I wanted you to see here that rather than doing exegesis at this point, I want us to look at three different passages, or maybe a few more than that. If Jesus is praying for the church right now, what's he praying? Like, really? In other words, if we are given in Scripture this picture of Jesus, the priest king, declaring the heart of God for the people of God, what's he praying? There's several things that Jesus prays for the church. The first thing Jesus prays for the church is to cover our sin. Now, we read... Verses 24 and 25, right? He has a permanent priesthood. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him. You may know that in Leviticus, the very first offering, chapter 1, was to make atonement for sin. So the priest would offer that to make atonement for uh, the people's sin. But um, you could look at this if you want. I'm just going to reference it. Some of you are familiar with Isaiah 53. This is where the suffering servant is prophesied who will pay the price for the sins of the people. Pardon me a moment. 
There we go. All right. And so most of Isaiah 53 is the, the, the suffering servant, Jesus, as an offering for sin. But the very last verse talks about prayer. Here's the last verse, verse 12 of Isaiah 53. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. A transgressor is someone who jumps a boundary. I'll say that again. For he bore the sin of many, yes, he was the sacrifice, and made intercession. In other words, he prayed for those who sinned. Now, in Isaiah 53, it's remembering that's what the priest would do for the people, and now the suffering servant, who we know is Jesus, is going to do that. He's going to pray whenever there is sin in our lives. So then look at Romans 8, 33 and 34. Paul also talks about this. What does Jesus pray for the sins of the people? Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 33 and 34 says this, and again mentions the intercession. Who will bring any accusation against those whom God has chosen, the people of God? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He is praying for the sins. He's saying no accusation. In other words, you know that um, uh, diabolos, devil, you know what that means? It means accuser. Have you ever experienced this? I bet you have. You're trying to do the right thing. You stumble a little bit. And for the rest of the week, memories in your brain. You did that, you did that, you did that, you did that, right? That's the work of the devil. I'm not saying it's the devil whispering in your ear, but that's the accusing of those who are trying to do the right thing. That's what's going on. And that's why he says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God has justified. He's declared you righteous. And then he says, and who will, uh, uh, who, uh, who, who is he that condemns? And then he says, when you are sensing that condemnation, he says, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding. In other words, uh, you know, to picture this, just it's kind of cartoonish, but to get the picture, right, you might say the devil's there saying, hey, Tim blew it, or Bob, or whoever, right? And Jesus is saying to God the Father, yes, but I paid for his sin. Doesn't deny the fact that there's sin, but he says it has been paid for and covered. Very powerful. Charles Wesley wrote this in a hymn, five bleeding wounds he bears, right? The hands, feet, and side. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let this ransomed sinner die. Powerful. Um, also look at 1 John briefly. And I, I was actually looking at my old um, study Bible uh, in, uh, in Greek, and I had a whole set of notes. It's very powerful. I'm just going to read them briefly. But here he says, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. He doesn't want to you know, take advantage of the fact that God forgives us. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So notice Hebrews, Romans 8, 
1 John 2 are all emphasizing a very important truth that when you fail and sin, you have someone who is forgiving and removing the accusation. Actually, let me read, you know this verse, but right before chapter 2, verse 1 is 1 John 1, 9. It's a familiar verse, but it's very important. This is crucial. John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, why is that important? In the context of 1 John, because there were heretics that were plaguing the early Christians and telling them we are already in a state of sinless perfection. We're already without sin because we believe and we have this secret knowledge and so we are without sin. And so John is saying God is willing to forgive but there's one thing you've gotta do. The word confess in Greek is homologeo. It means to say the same thing. The only thing we really have to do as a believer to be forgiven is to agree with God that we're wrong. And I'll tell you, if you've ever wrestled with it, have you ever, man, you know, not everyone's gonna have this experience, but have you ever, you know, been kind of walking through a week and there's something in the back of your mind, it's your conscience, and it's kind of niggling, like, but you're trying to ignore it. Push it away, right? Push it away, push it away, push it away. Don't keep pushing it away. Sadly, only a very few times, but sadly, there's been a few times as a pastor where I've seen people that have pushed that conscience away and eventually it becomes very difficult for them to hear truth. You don't want to do that. All he's asking is the humility to agree. Yeah, Lord, that was wrong. And then he says, all the accusation is gone. The only thing you need to remove that accusation is to agree, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. And then I won't go into all of it, but I was looking at my notes. When we do that, and we say, yeah, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. If you look at the larger context of 1 John 1, 6 through 2, 2, he says, then we suddenly have fellowship with one another. You see, real people have real connection. And so there's a joke, we talk about the fellowship of the saints. It's, uh, we don't mean it really, we mean plastic saints, but it's like, you know, that's what it's like, you know, uh, how you doing, Brother Mark? Brother Mark's like, oh yeah, I'm doing just great, right? And we go, okay, great, see you next week, right? That's the fellowship of the saints, right? The fellowship of the sinners, the real, are, you know, Mark, Mark says, Craig, Craig, how's it going? He said, well, I snapped at my kids, uh, could you pray with me? Suddenly we're like, yeah, me too, you know, whatever. You know, I'm not saying Mark would ever do that, but you know, <laughs> right, right? Suddenly we're real. And, and so you see how that works? Not only do we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. We don't have to be, pretend to be someone we're not. He says, that's what First John's talking about. Suddenly we're in this connection, like we're real people. We're not trying to pretend we're someone we're not. And we have fellowship with one another. And, the, and he says, the blood of Christ purifies us from every sin. That's where I want to live, real honest. I don't spill my guts to everybody. You know what I'm saying? You know, you find trusted friends, right? But, but you've got those connections where you can be a real person. And the fellowship is so powerful. Well, I went overboard on that one. But we'll, yeah. first thing Jesus prays for is the sin of the church. Second thing Jesus prays for is the healing of the church. We'll just look real quick at um, 
Yeah, real quick. Isaiah 57, and then we'll look at uh, Ezekiel. But Isaiah 57 is, is not about being forgiven. That's the, first, the second part of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 55. But in the last section of Isaiah, last 11 chapters, he talks about how do you get forgiven people free from the things that plague them. You know what I'm talking about? You can be forgiven, and, and you're right with God, and he's taking you to heaven. But, you know, there's some things you shouldn't be doing. And, and you're like, I want to stop, I want to stop, I want to stop. How do you break those habits? So Isaiah 57, I'll just read two verses. Verse 18 says, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I'll guide him and restore comfort to him. Restore, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. In other words, they mourn over their sin, right? Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. This is just a hint. We're kind of giving you a lot this morning, right? You're putting it together here. But many times when, when Christians, when believers, when sincere people want to get rid of a bad habit, they focus on the habit. I will not think about pink elephants. I will not think about pink elephants. I will not think, right? What happens? You're focused on your addiction. Here he says, I've seen their ways, but I will heal them. And notice, comfort and peace is the key to breaking habits of sin and addiction. And so the first point that I made to know that in process of restoration, you are being forgiven and cleansed. And you don't have the accusing fig finger pointing at you and weighing you down and you just can't measure up. The blood of Christ lifts that and the comfort and the focus and the peace enables us to begin to walk. But then how do we do it? Ezekiel 36, 27 says we do it, actually that we don't do it, <laughs> that we, it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 27, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So that we, be, we get a whole different picture. You know, sometimes when we're beginning the spiritual life, we think, oh, I got to really try to be a good person. And we try and we flop and we're like, oh, I'm sick of this, you know. But he says here, no, actually, it's very different. It's, Lord, I can't do this. Live through me by your spirit. You know, I can tell you stories I won't right now, but it's like, I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I couldn't change myself. Lord, live through me. Wow. It wasn't a big emotional experience, but it was like, oh, I can take a step. Oh, I can take another step. I can take another step. And see, here's the, here's the key. When that comes home to you, you realize the goal is not, Craig, independent, I can be righteous. The goal is, I'm constantly, kind of almost, not like I'm praying compulsively, but it's almost like I'm just always sort of connected with the Lord. Lord, live through me right now. I'm being tempted with my temper, being tempted to, you know, maybe um, kind of an addictive relationship to a video game or, you know, whatever your thing is, right? You know, I'm tempted to, you know, Lord, live through me. Restore comfort, restore peace to my soul, because that's where life is, right? So back to Hebrews, Jesus, Jesus is the lead intercessor. 
He's healing his church. One metaphor for the church is his bride. It's like he's beautifying his bride. Us, I mean, you know, the, the, the church. Th- this is the part of the Christian life that is really a real experience, right? I can't do that, what I just described for you, and you can't do it for me. It's really the, that intimacy. God, here's where I really am. Here's where my struggles really are. Would you live through me? And some of you have tried this. Uh, does uh, legalism work? How many would say, yeah, let's do legalism? Yeah, no. You know, I, I'm just piling on more rules is never going to do it. But to know the peace of God and say, okay, Lord, you're the one. I'm going to lean on you day by day. So what does this mean for us? It means to bring your real need to Jesus. And it's not like it's going to always get fixed in an hour, right? But to bring who you really are and say, Lord, I need you to work in my life. And that's why we call it a relationship. Second thing Jesus prays for then is the healing of the church. One final thing we'll look at today that Jesus prays for. It's the only actual sample we have of Jesus praying is the unity of the church. Look at John 17. Jesus is actually about to die for our sins. And John actually gives us a little bit of his prayer time. We'll look at just a couple verses. John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23 are extremely important. He starts out praying for his disciples, and at verse 20, he shifts to praying for the whole church throughout history. And here's what he prays. He's talking about his disciples. So he says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's all of us, right? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, listen to this, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, the glory that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, I know this is a lot of scriptures this morning, but look at this. Jesus prays that we would be one. That in other words, not that we'd all be clones, But he's saying, may there be unity among sincere, true Christians. May there be a a love, a respect, uh, even though we may have differences in our backgrounds or politics or education or perspective, that even in spite of all of that, that true believers will have a unity. And if we do, look at this. The world will believe God sent Jesus. What? Yeah. That when we are one in Christ, it speaks of the supernatural nature of the church. Then the world will believe God loves them. Verse 23. When the world sees us love one another, it recognizes this is supernatural. People of different backgrounds, ethnicities, race, or even more superficial things like clothing style, <laughs> you know, right? Love the, oh, what are those guys? You know, the, the guys that always wore the black clothes in the 80s and 90s. 
You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the guy. You love the guys too, right? You know, everybody, right? This verse, these two verses are saying, this is what demonstrates the reality of the gospel. Wow. Suddenly you know why Jesus says love one another, right? Because it's supernatural. One last verse. Sorry, I knew I said it, we were done. But okay, one last verse. Look at Romans 15, 7. In Romans, they're fighting over food. So there's people who think it's wrong to eat meat, and there's think, people who think it's wrong to drink wine, and there's others who disagree with them, right? Sounds like just like today. Okay, so uh, what he says is, verse 7, he says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He says, when you can accept people that have differing convictions over disputable matters, you are modeling what Christ did for you and it releases worship to God. He's really saying similar to the high priestly prayer, right? He's saying that when we demonstrate a unity that is deeper than our subculture, politics, racial background, we are demonstrating something that the world cannot do that is supernatural. The final thing Jesus prays for is the unity of the church. So, so looking back at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, the verses tell us Jesus lives forever, so he has a permanent priesthood. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's praying for our sins. So you don't have to rest in accusation, condemnation ever again for our healing so that those things where we are tormented and doing wrong, he can restore and for the unity and beauty of the bride of Christ, the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. You hear this morning, some may need to renew their connection to God. It's really three words. Sorry, thank you, and please. And here's that, how it works. When we renew our connection to God, we say, sorry, we agree with God, that confession, that we've not been living the life he wants for us. Thank you, says, thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins on the cross, paying the price, and now praying for us. And then the please says, please, make me the person, inside and out, that you meant me to be. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. So wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, encouraging you, agree with God where there's something wrong. You don't have to tell me, you don't have to tell anybody. Just tell God. Just agree. Thank him for the cross and ask him to make you the person he wants you to be. Would you pray with me as we pray through that? Lord, Jesus, we come before you right now and we freely confess, we're sorry, we have not been all that we could or should be. We know that. Whether thought, word, or deed, there's been sins, there's been failure, there's been irritations, whatever there might be. We're sorry, Lord, but we thank you, Jesus, that you died for our sins, that you paid the price, and that even now you are praying for us to enter into the fullness of our relationship with you. 
so that we would say, please make us inside out, starting on the inside, working out the people that you desire us to be. In your own heart, I'm just going to pause a moment. Sorry, thank you, and please take a moment just in your heart to pray to God, and then I'll close. So, Lord, now we thank you so much that you have made us new in Christ. That we can leave this morning refreshed, knowing that you are interceding, you are praying, you are crying out, declaring who it is we're to become. That we can walk almost like Jesus walked on water. We can walk by faith, trusting you to live through us. That we can glorify your name through loving our neighbor, showing care, being Christ to those we would meet this week. So we ask you to bless us as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.